The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we do want to sing like we just did. We do want to sing out from our hearts. Jesus is our great salvation. And to esteem Him above everything else. You have done something marvelous to to save a people. Most of us here, Lord. You've done something marvelous and we say thank You. Blessed be Your name. We also know that we wrestle day after day with esteeming other things above Him. Lord, I I say for myself, I'm sorry. For my brothers and sisters here, we say we're, we're sorry. Thank You. Thank You for the, the radical truth of utter forgiveness. No grudge held on Your part. No out of the corner of Your eye glancing at us in, in suspicion. Forgiveness. Blessed be Your name. What a great salvation. So remind us of that, Lord. Remind us how You remove sin as far as the east is from the west. Grow in us, as, as we think about that, grow in us esteem for this wonderful Savior. And then, Lord, one step beyond that, grow in us trust for how He leads us down a path that is sometimes hard to discern sometimes fraught with difficulty, sometimes painful. Sometimes it leads through darkness. When that is the case, Lord, remind us of a great Savior who never leaves and never forsakes. Growing us trust of Him. Growing us trust of You. As we consider today from the book of 1 Samuel, what can be a complicated and sometimes hard doctrine. Make us a people who rest in You. Who reckon above all things that are confusing and all things that are difficult. Who reckon above that a tremendous abundance of gracious love. A Savior highly esteemed. All glory to You. I'll praise to You. And I ask You, grow in us great trust in You. Open up the Scripture to us, Lord. Open up the truth to us. Change us and grow us and set us free. Set us free from anxiety. Liberate us to delight and hope. Do that, I pray, this morning from this passage. Spirit of God, come into our midst and effect change. 
Make your people new. Honor the Son. That's my prayer. I hope here this morning do what we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 29. We are drawing near to the climax of this book. The, the events and the intensity of these events are heating up. Last week, chapter 28, the very beginning, we saw David in a dilemma. He had faithlessly fled to the land of the Philistines, and things had been working out just fine for over a year until, in an offhanded way, his protector... Achish, king of Gath, just happens to mention, oh, by the way, next time we go to war against the Israelites, I'm looking forward to your service with me, and I'm going to make you my bodyguard for life, oh, trusted servant. Gulp. David's done such a good job of convincing Achish that he's loyal and that he's against Israel and that he's, he's cut all ties with Israel that Achish has recruited him as a mercenary and made him his bodyguard for the next time they go out to war against Israel. David's got a dilemma. And in fact, we might say God has a dilemma because how is God going to fulfill his promise to make David David king of Israel after David makes war on Israel? And we're left hanging there. As the rest of the chapter moves, switches scenes to Saul. And we learn that God is, in fact, going to tear down Saul. This is one of the most gripping, unusual, but gripping and terrible passages of the Bible. As we consider, as we looked at last week, what it is to be forsaken by God in your sin, abandoned by God. Saul is is crushed as all of the weight of the ages, the hand of God, clearly comes down on him. And through the prophet Samuel, God says, tomorrow you die and stand before me in judgment. Utterly forsaken by God for his sin. A terrible thing. This is the greatest of all tragedies, to be rejected by God. And as we pressed that home to us last week, we saw that today, right now, is the time to respond in repentance and to not put it off and put it off and put it off because hardening is real. None of us should want to end up where Saul was. And so the, the call to us is to respond now before it is too late because there comes a point when it is too late We don't know when that is, but we know that it is. And so today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts and turn away, but turn back. It was pressed on us from last week as we looked at Saul, who did not turn and is lost. It's a great tragedy. And it ends with God certainly tearing down Saul and certainly going to lift up, and as He says, give the kingdom to David. But we're left asking, how David's marching in war against Israel? How are they going to make him king after he attacks them? What's God going to do about that? That's chapter 29, where we see what God does about that. But we see it between the lines, because this is another one of those chapters that almost doesn't mention God at all. The the Lord does come up but not in a way that tells us what God's thinking or what God views something as. He comes up actually on the, on the lips of the pagan king Achish as he swears an oath in the name of the Lord. Apart from that, we, we don't know what God's doing, but we, as we read between the lines, we see, aha, look what God's doing. 
to deliver David out of this dilemma and to be faithful to keep his kingdom promises. That's what we're going to look at in this passage today. Let me read it, all of chapter 29, just 11 verses long. 29 verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commander of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul? king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years, and since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him, and the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you've been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I've found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord does not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Chapter 29. Philistines begins with the Philistines just gathering their army at Aphek. That happened before. You remember back in chapter 4. So there's a bit of ominous forecasting there. They're assembling their armies from the five major cities. The Philistines were were organized along five major cities with sub-communities around them. And they each had a ruler, a commander, a king over each one. Achish is over Gath and the surrounding region. And probably these commanders, these lords, are the other four kings. And they each brought their forces and they assembled them into one joint army here at Aphek before launching the campaign against Israel proper. So they're all gathering together these forces and, and Achish brings his guys and as he with his armies passing by the other lords, they notice this group of Hebrews with him in the rear, right next to him. And they question him. They're Hebrews. Don't you know who we're going to go fight? It's not that mercenaries were unknown. Everybody had mercenaries, but it just doesn't seem like a good idea to have mercenaries from the people that you're going to go fight. There's loyalty issues there. So they raised that with him, and apparently because they questioned these Hebrews, the commanders don't recognize David specifically. 
They just noticed a few hundred guys who were foreigners. But Achish, then naively, he isn't concerned by any of this at all. Remember 27 verse 12, he trusts David completely and thinks that David has made himself an utter stench in the nostrils of Israel. He has no problem, no concerns, no questions about loyalty at all. And so naively he says, oh, this is David. Don't you know David, the servant of King Saul of Israel? Which lights him up. I have no problem with him at all. He, since he deserted from Saul, he's, he's been great for me. No problem at all. Achish defends him, as he does three times throughout the passage. Achish loves David. But the lords are furious and probably flabbergasted. This is David, the David? The one from the song? Thirteen years ago? The song is still ringing in their ears from thirteen years ago. This is the one David has slain his ten thousand. Recall, Achish, those were ten thousand Philistines. I realize he's deserted to us, but what's the one and only conceivable way that he could make things right with Saul? Wouldn't it be to bring our five heads to him? And you've placed him with a sword right behind us in the upcoming battle. What on earth are you thinking? Send him home immediately. That's their response. And so chastened, Achish meets with David to give him the bad news. And the irony here in the next several verses is pretty thick because he lays it on in a way that we, the reader, knows is, is undeserved. I know you are marvelously loyal to me, and there is no way whatsoever, in, in any conceivable way, that you would again find ties with Israel. We know what's about to happen. You are loyal to me. You've been like an angel of God among me. You've been completely honest with me. But the other guys don't trust you. So you have to go. And David then, just perfectly pitched, protests just to the right amount. What have I done? Now, why does he do this? I don't think it's because David actually wants to go up and make war on Israel and raise his sword against Saul. He has repeatedly refused to do that. He doesn't want to do that. But David realizes he's got a loyalty issue here. The moment that Achish thinks he's disloyal, he has a huge problem. So he wants to be perceived as loyal to him. And he pitches it just right. What have I ever done? Nothing, but you have to go. You have to leave early. Four times the last two verses emphasize leaving early, 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 as soon as they had light pointing out again to future readers that David not only never lifted his sword against Israel, but wasn't even among the army when they broke camp to begin the campaign proper. He was already headed home by the time they marched on Israel. Headed home, we'll find out next chapter, ironically, to be rescuing Israelites at the same time that God is pouring out his judgment on Saul. That's the chapter. Just a collection of, of events that turned David away from the army, that resolved the dilemma. What do we have here? Why is this in the Bible? Interesting news, I suppose, but why is it in the Bible? Well, what we have here is, again, another presentation of how the providence of God actually works in life, about what it looks like. This is again a chapter 
pointing out God's providence. And so my hope this morning is that we will look at this and understand a little more about providence, so understand it, and then embrace it, or let me put it a different way, so that you would know it and would love it. Know it and love it. To love the providence of God. It has to go. Everything that we, that we discern from the Scriptures has to go to this point of, of helping us to walk in heart union with God, not just to co- be collecting more facts. We don't only want to know the doctrine of providence or understand it a little more exactly, be able to, to parse it out and, and explain it, but we want to have it affect us to love this doctrine. And it is a sweet sweet thing if it will sink into you there is blessing in this untold blessing i want you to know it and then to love it towards that end let's talk about what the doctrine of providence is and let me make my first observation i'll I'll come at that by making this point here's the first observation god is always providentially working to bring about His kingdom promises. God is always, always providentially working to bring about His kingdom promises. We see that in this passage. What is this text? It is a solution to David's dilemma. He's drafted into Achish's army about to attack Israel, which jeopardizes God's kingdom promise to make him king. And it appears to us there are only three options. Probably appeared to David there's only, only three options here. Either I fight against Israel. That's going to ruin everything. Hard to be king after that. Or I do what the Lord suspect and I fight against them in an ambush. And if, if I fail at that, I die. Hard to be king if you're dead. But if I succeed at that, then Saul doesn't die and continues to live on as king which we've just seen isn't going to happen. Last chapter. There's a dilemma there. Maybe the third option is just run away at night, desert, leave. Which will surely, however, make him seem disloyal. Make his stay in Ziklag over. Philistines be chasing him then. None of these these options work. None of them protect David. None of them leave him secure. None of them bring about his move towards the throne. They all endanger him or, or eliminate the possibility completely. What's he going to do? These three options, there's, there's no other option except a fourth option is brought up by the Philistine lords, the only people who could bring this up. They say, send him home just to be on the safe side. Verses 3, 6, and 9, Achish repeatedly affirms, I trust you, I believe you, I I hope in you, I, I, I am not turning away from you, go in peace. And then in 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, the lords repeatedly say, send him home, we don't trust him. We don't like him, we don't want him. It's the perfect solution. He gets dismissed from the battle while while still having the safe place in Achish's heart. It's great. 
perfectly resolves the dilemma. David never fights against Israel, leaves early, gets out of there just in time, never invites the wrath of the Philistines, and it's all thanks to the Philistine commanders. And if you don't believe in God, that's all there is to it. Nice solution. But the writer of the Bible believes in God. And he expects us to believe in God, and he expects us to come to the passage and say, let's look at that one more time and say, how actually, actually did that come about? And if we circle back and ask, we begin to notice a few more things. How did it come about? Well, the Philistine commanders, in their careful prudence, remembered a song right in the middle of the passage, written 13 years ago. And in their careful prudence, they happened to notice some Hebrews. That's how it happened. Their careful, thoughtful, remembering prudence. Or we might say, Achish's carelessness is how it happened. Because he brought along the Hebrews and put them right there in plain sight and then blabbed about David. That's how it happened. Achish's carelessness. Or we might say, actually, none of this would have come to a head if it hadn't have been for that song. How it happened was 13 years ago when some women in jubilation decided to just coin a, a little ditty about Saul and his thousands and David and his ten thousand, just kind of erupted out of them spontaneously, and it hung around for years. That's how it happened back then. Or we might say, actually, how it happened was David, in, in his great cunning, persuaded Achish that he was trustworthy. And the only reason he was there is that he, in his faithlessness, his sin, fled from Israel and came to Gath. So who caused this? The Lord's? Achish? The songwriters? David? Was it prudence and memory? carelessness and and naivety, exuberance, cunning, or sin? Yes. All of it. All of it caused this fourth solution, which is so critical, don't lose sight of this, which is so critical for God fulfilling what He promised to do. In just the previous chapter, I am taking the kingdom away from Saul and I am giving it to David. How am I going to do that? Through lords and Achish and women and David and jubilation and prudence and observation and sin. That's how I'm going to do it. The Bible means for us to see all of those things as pieces of a greater puzzle, but to see the Lord as the maker of the puzzle and the maker of the solution. It is God who acted to deliver David from this dilemma. It is God who acted to safely protect His kingdom plans. It is God who is acting to bring down Saul and to lift up David providentially. Providence, simply defined, is that working of God in which He perfectly accomplishes His plans and purposes by the means of, that is, using ordinary secondary agents or actors. 
I'll say that again. Providence, that working of God in which he perfectly accomplishes his plans and purposes. So God's got a plan, God's got a purpose, and he accomplishes it by means of using ordinary secondary agents like people, like weather patterns, like animals, like laws of nature. This, this particular instance focuses on people. God carrying it out. This is not a miracle. Miracles are the suspending of the ordinary working. The miracles are rare, but providence is constant. God is always constantly engaged working at all times in every moment. Think about this here. In every circumstance, in every person, every weather pattern, every animal's birth, in every transmission of a cold, in every mutation of a gene, every death of a cell, in every random act of kindness, in every senseless crime, every mundane purchase at Target, every critical discussion in the Oval Office, in every mountain cave that nobody even knows exists, in Times Square, in your bedroom, five minutes ago, last month, 50 years ago, in every circumstance, in every place, in everything, in every moment, God is always working providentially to accomplish His kingdom purposes. Nothing exists outside of the sovereign control of God. There is not 95% of the creation and then a little bit over here that's renegade. Even the evil spirits, you will recall repeatedly from this book itself, are subject to the Lord. There is one master of all that is, God. And He controls it all to work. Singing women and gullible kings and prudent commanders and His own sinful servants. It is all planned in all of its vast intricacy. And it is vast intricacy. Just think. All of the alls that I just laid out there, that is a complex puzzle. This is God. God who works all these things together. So many agents and so many people and so many things, so many details, good ones and bad ones, even wicked ones. It is all part of His great and powerful and irresistible plan to bring about His kingdom purposes to answer the prayer Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he says, yes. And in a gazillion ways, here's how I do it. Most of which we never think about and never know. 
Now I realize this, this, can be, this can be hard to understand and hard to think about. Hard in two ways, I think. One, one kind of intellectual way and one a very personal, emotional way. And so about the intellectual way, let me, let me say first, it is common for us to, to think things like God, maybe God deals with the big stuff, or He's kind of a big picture sort of guy, but all the details, every cell that dies, are you kidding me? No way. Way. Everything. Or it's common to say that maybe He reacts to things, or He makes lemonade out of lemons really well. That He's reactive, and I'm saying, no, He's proactive. He's got a plan and a purpose. So we need, we need to kind of face this in intellectually first and understand what the Bible says about this. Understand that God is over every single detail. Yet the Bible makes crystal clear that it does not make Him the responsible author of sin. Responsibility still rests in the agent's. Yet God is over every single detail. Think about some of these things. What does the Bible say? Who steers the hearts of kings like a stream of water? Who steers the hearts of Philistine kings? Proverbs says it's the Lord. Who controls the the casting of lots, the, the throw of a die? Who controls the drawing out of the black stone or the white stone out of the ephod? The Bible says it's the Lord. Seemingly random things. Who brings wellness, well-being, as well as calamity. Isaiah 43 says it is the Lord. Who determines all things, predestining all things according to what His own will has decided should be. Ephesians 1.11 says it is the Lord. Write that verse down and look at that one later especially. It loops back on itself repeatedly. It says that God counsels Himself according to what God wants to do and advises Himself what to make happen, and He does. God. Specific statements like that. Or then examples. Consider the story of Joseph, and there are countless examples. I'm leaving David behind here to get something else. You can see it all across David's life too. See the story of Joseph, Genesis 45. You know the story of Joseph? Who sold Joseph into slavery as a teenager? Caused him to be a slave in Egypt and then imprisoned in a dungeon 13 years. And when it finally comes around time to reckon with his brothers, Joseph is in power, and he says to them in chapter 45, when they're shaking in their boots, realize, I am Joseph. Oh, no. Twice he says, whom you sold into slavery. Who's responsible? Whom you sold into slavery. And then he says, but it was God who sent me before you. So, he says this specifically, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. God. And he summarizes again in chapter 50. You meant it for evil, you brothers of mine. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Not turned it to good, not brought good out of it in the end. You meant one thing, and He meant another. 
That's God with a plan, a proactive purpose, as Joseph says, for the saving of many lives. God with a plan. The Bible is full of this over and over and over again. God with a plan, God with a purpose, God proactive, God controlling to carry out His purposes, His intention, as He has counseled Himself that He wants to do. How? Through the actions of jealous brothers and jubilant women on a street corner and prudent kings who are saying, that's going to be a problem, send him home. Intellectually, we need to understand the clear, consistent, loud message of the Bible. God providentially controls all things to bring about His kingdom purposes. But then emotionally, we've got another issue that we need to face. Because as soon as I say that, if you happen to be Joseph in prison... That's hard. God controlling? If you happen to be one of those people in which a, a gene has mutated or a cell has died or whatnot and, and a disease has come from that, God in control of it? That's hard. We have an emotional problem, which is quite distinct from the intellectual problem. We have an emotional problem that we need to face here. And I would encourage you to look at two things. One, to think about something in what you, you believe you would prefer. We believe we would prefer to say, oh, God didn't control that. God just responded to it. I don't think on second thought that's actually comforting to you. It is not actually very encouraging to find a God who isn't in charge of anything, especially the stuff that hurts. Maybe he's in charge of the other stuff, but the stuff that hurts, he's not in charge of. Because who is? Nobody. Think about this. Refer to something John Piper said about the death of his mother. John Piper's mother, John Piper's a pastor, author, Minnesota. His mother died in a car accident when a piece of wood came through the window of the bus she was riding on and hit her in the head and killed her. So I say to him, God controls this, 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 including the, the flight of that beam. He says, I take no comfort in a God who can't control the flight of a piece of wood. Instead, to paraphrase him, the only place there is comfort is in a wise, good, and loving God who says, I have a plan. And it is a plan to bring about my vast, wide, long, high, deep kingdom promises and love to you, my son. That's the only comfort. And that, if you'll think about it, sounds a lot like the message he said to his son in the garden. Father, I wish you could find another way. Can you not find another way? Why would you ordain this cross for me? I have a plan. 
that involves you, son, passing through this forsakenness. I will turn my face away from you, and for a time and a period you will feel the rejection of all the ages. But I have a plan, and on the other side of it, I pour out all of my kingdom blessings and the vast, wide, long, high, deep love and joy that I have for you, on you, and then on all of them for you. And for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross. There is emotional comfort only in that. And that's what you need to keep your eyes set on. We would love to know everything that God is doing in every situation, but we cannot. But we can know what it is He is moving us towards, what He intends to do in the end, and what He sovereignly, surely will accomplish in all of His might and all of His goodness for us, His people whom He loves. Intellectually, what the Bible says is clear about this, and emotionally, I think what the Bible says should also be clear And it should be compelling to you. All I could do is pray that it is compelling, that God would say, this is where hope lies. And a God who says, I have a plan. And here's what the plan is to do you immense good, more than you can ask or imagine. So trust me. His providence is extremely long in view. He's focused on a goal which is out there, often down a long and winding path. We just need to look in the Bible at certain instances and say, man, this has been a long time in coming, this this making David king. He's going to be, yeah, it's, it's tomorrow already. It's coming right up now. But he promised it to him 13 years ago when he anointed him. And before that, he forecast it to Saul before David was born. And before that, through Moses, he gave laws governing kings before there even were any kings asked for. And before that, he promised, while Israel was still in Egypt, a king in the line of Judah. This has been a long time in coming. God works in the long view. But he is not slow in keeping his promises as some reckon slowness. He is resolute. And he brings it about. He brings it about. So trust him. God is always at work, always at work, providentially, to bring about his kingdom promises in everything, always. That's what providence teaches us and now let me invite you to love it. The second point is this. Life lived in light of providence is the most blessed of all possible lives. Life lived in light of providence is the most blessed of all possible lives. And I want to emphasize the in light of in light of God's providence. Speaking to Christians now, if you're not a Christian, become one. Do. It's your only hope, but it is a great hope. But if you're not, then then to live in light of God's providence leaves you where Saul is. That's not good news. 
But for a Christian, you always live under the providence of God. He is always at work in your life, carrying everything towards the the end that He has begun in you. That's always the case, but to live in light of that is the benefit. So I'm emphasizing the not that God's providence is at work, but to live in light of it. That is, knowing it, banking on it, it makes a huge difference. We see this from time to time in David's life. When he knows it, when he reckons it, when he banks on it, he can stand next to the sleeping Saul and say, I have no need to attack him. God will take care of it. And then when he forgets that, he runs over to Gath because I'm, I'm doomed. To live in light of the providence of God was a great life experience. To live forgetting it is devastating. So to live in light of We don't know what David's thinking about in this passage exactly. He doesn't tell us all that's on his mind. But we know that if he was living in light of the providence of God, we with our bird's eye view can look at this and say, what he should have been thinking, stand among the gathered Philistine army in light of the providence of God and watch the commanders chew out Achish in light of the providence of God and to march away then. And when he comes up in sight of Ziklag and sees the smoke rising from the city as we'll see next chapter, to look at the smoke rising from his home in light of the providence of God. For him to live like that, or for us to see all of life, the bad and the frightening and the uncertain and the dangerous and the confusing and the distasteful and the awkward and the painful and the humiliating and the deadly, And I throw those words out, and I know they are real words. They are real words. I'm trying to talk about real life. To live the bad and the frightening and the uncertain and the dangerous and the confusing and the distasteful and the awkward and the painful and the humiliating and the deadly as well as all the good and delightful and clear and fun. To live all of that, moment by moment, in the light of God's constant providential control that is surely bringing about His good kingdom promises to you would have a couple of marvelous effects. Think. It would free you from anxiety. It would free you from worrying about what will come and how it will play out and what you should do and what these consequences might mean. It does not free you from acting. In fact, it expects you to act through secondary agents. It expects us to read the Bible and see what God wants, to pray and ask Him to lead us, to think with the minds that He's given us and to look at the circumstances in front of us, to use ordinary human wisdom. To think and to act is assumed. It doesn't free us from acting, but it frees us from worry. Gloriously. Sit on that for a minute. Can you imagine... Can you imagine? I almost can't imagine it. To walk through life moment by moment, not anxious. 
Not afraid of what is going to be. Or what did she mean by that? Or what will happen if? It is under the hands of a God who is good and is surely working everything in it. Even if I make a mistake. Even if and when I sin. Even if I slip up and don't notice something. He has it. It is in His plan. It is for my good. You can act then free from worry. And then positively speaking, it should bring always an abundance of patient hope. All things meant by God to bring about the favorable outcome for you. Sit on that for a minute. (sighs) Patient hope. Because everything that you encounter, including the working of the cells in your body, how many of us have a disease right now that we don't know about? You can't raise your hand, obviously. Well, you better run out now and pay your $595 and get your AccuScan and find that out. And then you better do it next week because something might have happened in the weeks between. Then you better do it again the next week. Then you better do it again the next week. Then you better do it again the next week. Or you could be free from anxiety and live in patient hope. Which I'm not saying we shouldn't go to doctors. But come on, we got a problem in our country. We have a problem in the church. We have a problem in our hearts. We think, I have to protect me. And I better find out the problem that I'm facing right now. And, and here, here's the way I can do it. And if I, and if I don't do it quickly enough, what's going to happen to me? Glorious. <sighs> Anxiety releasing. Patient hope outpouring truth this is. In the proper time frame, all things work together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purposes. That's a verse every Christian knows, and most of us don't believe in our anxiety and impatient fear. He is called. He is predestined. He is justified. He is sanctified, ironically even glorified, you, says Romans 8. And nothing on the earth can separate you from His love, says Romans 8. And all those things, in fact, are being worked together to do you good, 
Not like lemonade comes from lemons that just appear, but intentionally. God has a plan in all of it. Worked for your good, says Romans 8. All of it given to you as a tool. Even the hard. Even the hard. Given as a tool and in time will be seen. There's going to come a day, brothers and sisters, when the, the chaotic sea will be turned to glass. The darkness will be chased away. All sin and all fallenness will be removed. And there will come a time when we in perfect glory look at the enthroned King in all of His majesty and say, bless Your name for everything that You did in my life. Everything that You did through my life. It was a marvelously intricate, complicated, long-term, wise, good, loving plan. It has done me wonders as it has reduced my ties and my affection of all the things of the world and has heightened my comprehension of the beauty of the majestic glory of You, O Savior. That day will come and You will fall down in worship Oh, brothers and sisters, what a day it will be. Do not lose sight of that, but live in light of it. That day's coming whether you remember it or not, but to live in light of it is the most glorious of all possible lives. Oh, that you would not forget. Oh, that you would not shrink back to complaining and fearing. We do that. I do that all the time. For crying out loud, why do I do that? I forget. Oh, that you would not forget, but you would walk in light of this. The providence of God is the sweetest of all doctrines. Theologians before me have said that. I'm growing to believe it. Will you believe it? The fact that God has everything. Every little thing going on inside of you, every big thing going on in the newspaper, everything under His sovereign control is marvelous and freeing and beautiful. We do not have a small God Rushing around trying to put out fires. We have a massive God who controls all things through the operation of secondary agents to carry out the purpose that He's counseled Himself He should do. Worship Him. Give thanks to Him. Trust Him. Believe Him. And walk free from anxiety in life. Let me pray. Lord, one day, one day when the tears are wiped away, we will see it all no longer through a glass dimly, but clearly. And we will see You clearly. We won't know everything because we'll never be God. But we will see. 
And what I ask, Father, is that you would, by your Spirit's power, that you would give us a little more sight now and grace to believe now. And for particular people here, I don't know who they are, but you do. For particular people here, Lord, would you, in in a remarkable and powerful, clear way, reach in and say, I got it. I've got it. Trust me. Assure them of your goodness and your nearness. Assure them that you've got a plan, even if they can't see it, because it's too long-term and too big picture. Do that for particular individuals here, I ask you, Lord, please. For all of us, reinforce us with strong belief in your goodness. Fight sin in us, in me, by convincing your people that you are good. We need your help, Lord. We need your grace. Please give it. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.